Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57. We're studying God's Word today. We're continuing our series on building something eternal. Building something eternal. Next week, we're going to look at building an eternal view of God for my life. How does believing in an eternal God and believing in God's eternal purposes, how does that affect the way that I live? And how many of you believe it ought to affect the way that you live? Amen. And so we're going to be looking at that next week. And then that will be the end of the Building Something Eternal series. But I hope it's not the end of us building something eternal. Amen. You say, what are we going to do then? Back to the book of Zechariah. And this will all be new because, you know, we had repeated the first section and now we're getting into all new material. So be in prayer for that. I'm excited to learn some things from the book of Zechariah. If you're a guest with us or you've just begun coming during this series, what our practice at Grace Baptist is and has been uh, ever since I've been pastor is we just preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And what we have found is God answers questions and meets people's needs in ways as I preach through the scriptures that I could never accomplish if I were trying to meet your needs myself. So really be in prayer for that series. We're going to be heading back into the book of Zechariah, which is just, we're about to get into the good stuff too. Just wait. It's going to be an exciting thing. So building something eternal. Why don't we have a word of prayer and we'll start. Lord, thank you for being the eternal God. And last week we looked at eternal prayer and Sunday night, we looked at how Daniel prayed to you, and and he identified you as the great and dreadful God. And Lord, thank you that while you are great and dreadful, that you have approached us in mercy and grace. So, Father, help us to learn some more things about you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Building something eternal. And this morning, we're looking at building an eternal view of God. Why do we need to build an eternal view of God? Why is it important? Well, let's start by reviewing our definition of eternity. It's duration or continuance without beginning or end. So God doesn't have a beginning and he doesn't have an end. That is what it means to be eternal, all right? And so I I can tell already, summer has started. And this is what, so I'm very insecure. And when I look out there and at the, I haven't even started and this is what I'm looking at. Let's, Let's get focused in on the word of God and let's pay attention and man if we're looking at the eternal god i can't take it man i can't take it people being bored with the subject of the eternal god and that that's my weakness that's my flesh coming through so help me okay will y'all help me this morning amen all right so duration or continuance without beginning or end god doesn't have a beginning or end by repeating the idea of any length of duration with the endless addition of number we come by the idea of eternity And again, the human mind can't comprehend eternity, so we need to understand our definitions from the Scriptures. So there are three basic responses to eternity, and we've looked at this the last two weeks, and they are fear, doubt, and denial. Fear, doubt, and denial. But we as believers, we need to have no fear. We certainly have no doubt, and we don't want to deny because we know who God is and what he has promised. Amen? And if you're here today and the concept of eternity brings fear to your heart or you're not sure about it or you're just denying it, the Bible, we're going to see some things from the scriptures today that will really help you with that. Because we as believers should never have any of these three, fear, doubt, or denial about eternity. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And remember what Thomas said, how are we going to know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We, because of Jesus, there's no fear for the future. Isn't that a blessing? So let's, let's look at some of these things. If we're going to build something eternal, we have to have a foundation. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And, of course, the Bible talks about Jesus, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because Jesus Christ will never change and he's our foundation, our foundation will never change. That's how we have an eternal faith and an eternal view of God. 
But why is an eternal view of God necessary? Young people, you graduates, why does it matter that you have, and, and I'm going to be addressing the graduates quite a bit today. I've got to find Hannah. Where's Hannah at? I lost her. Back there. Hannah, come on up here. I want you here on the front row. I'll make you walk right in front of everybody again twice in one day. So for you graduates, why is an eternal view of God necessary? And what's interesting is for these young people, they probably don't even have any doubts about who God is or that God is eternal. But what's going to happen in the future? Why is an eternal view of God necessary? This is a picture of a preacher, and he says, God uses the worst of us to reach the rest of us. God uses the worst of us to reach the rest of us. It's an interesting statement. Who is this man? His name is Dave Gass. He was pastor of a mega church, I believe, in Missouri. And I had heard about this, oh, just, in, just recently. And then yesterday I was listening to Frank Turek's podcast, the Cross-Examined Podcast. And he reviewed an article in the Christian Post about this pastor. Why is this? And, and so it completely wrecked my message for today, listening to that yesterday. And I thought that this is absolutely perfect for explaining to these four young people and the rest of us why we need an eternal view of God. So Dave Gass is a pastor. He was raised in a Christian home, and he had given his life to the Lord. He said that he had memorized 14 books of the Bible, committed 14 books of the Bible to memory. But something happened. These are his own tweets. This is his explanation of what happened. After 40 years of being a devout follower... 20 of those being an evangelical pastor, I am walking away from faith. Even though this has been a massive bomb drop in my life, it has been decades in the making. So here's a pastor, pastor of a mega church. He's been a pastor for 20 years, and now he's walking away from the faith. And of course, how many of you think the news media loved that? You know, I know hundreds of pastors that have walked with the Lord and and have been faithful their entire lives. They don't make the news. But one that rejects the faith, people love that. So why did he walk away from the faith? His reasons, and he gives basically six reasons why he walked away from the faith. Number one, he began by comparing Scripture to Greek mythology. This is what he said. When I was in eighth grade and I was reading Greek mythology, it dawned on me how much of the supernatural interactions between the deity of the Bible and mankind sounded like ancient mythology. That seed of doubt never went away. It's interesting, isn't it? His doubts started when he was in eighth grade by reading Greek mythology And he thought the Bible sounded a lot like his Greek mythology. I'm going to answer some of that in a minute. Reason two, he explained how he was raised in a hyper-fundamentalist Christian home. Now, fundamentalism was a reaction to worldliness. It was a reaction to modernism. And modernism in the late 1800s was a denial of the inspiration of the scriptures. So you had a group of Christians who no, no longer believed that the Bible was inspired. They no longer believed that Jesus was born of a virgin. They no longer believed that Jesus was God. They no longer believed in the miracles of the Bible or the return of Jesus Christ. Then why be a Christian? Isn't that a good question? If you don't believe in any of those things, why be a Christian? Because they were still getting their paycheck. And so there were a group of people that put out some pamphlets called the Fundamentals. And if you were a fundamentalist, that meant that you believed in the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the miracles of the Bible, the return of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace alone, and that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sin as well as the sins of the world. That's what it meant to be a fundamentalist. Hyper-fundamentalism was this idea where they started adding a whole lot of works to the faith. So you had to dress a certain way to be a Christian. There was certain music that you couldn't listen to if you were a Christian. And if you did, then you weren't really a Christian. And they started adding things to the gospel and to the scriptures. And so he he said he was raised in a hyper-fundamentalist Christian home. 
where, and this is continuing, where Christianity didn't work. The promises were empty. The answers were lies. That's interesting, isn't it? That was his experience growing up, and yet he still became a pastor. Reason three, as an adult, my marriage was a sham and a constant source of pain for me. I did everything I was supposed to. Marriage workshops, counseling, Bible reading together, date nights every week, marriage books. But my marriage never became what I was promised it would be. It's another reason that he left the faith. Reason four, he went on to discuss how miserable his life eventually became as his expectations, including experiencing the supernatural, failed to match up with the reality he was experiencing. And that's a quote from that Christian Post article. Now, I've never heard of the Christian Post. I don't know what it is, but this was where the article came from. So it's, it, this is interesting. He was not experiencing the supernatural. So what he was expecting in, a super, in the supernatural realm didn't happen. He didn't experience that. Another reason, reason five, an inescapable reality that I came to was that the people who benefited the most from organized religion were the fringe attenders who didn't take it too seriously. The people who were devout were the most miserable, but just kept trying harder. Now, I've got to stop right there. How many of you think maybe he didn't know the right people? I'm pretty devout, and I'm not miserable at all. I tell the young people all the time, I want you to have my life. That doesn't mean I hate you. (laughs) If I were miserable, I'd want you to have my... If I hated you, then then I'd want you to have a miserable life. I love you. I want you to have a great life. I can't imagine this concept. The most joyful people I know are devout believers. It's, It's an interesting thing. Reason six. The entire system is rife with abuse, and not just from the top down. Sure, there are abusive church leaders, but church leaders are abused by their congregants as well. Church people are just, and I I took the expletive out, they're just bad to each other. Interesting. So these are his reasons. Those are his six reasons. He said this, I spent my entire life serving, loving, and trying to help people in my congregations. And the lies, betrayal, and slander I have received at the hands of church people left wounds that may never heal. And let me tell you something. We hear a lot about abusive pastors, and I have known some. That's a real thing. Have you ever been around an abusive pastor? Have you ever been in a situation like that? It's terrible. But what people don't think about sometimes is how church people treat their pastors. And so you all, some of you here last Sunday night, I talked about Paul Gentry. That situation's not resolved yet. Um, some real problems in that church, and people are lying and saying horrible things and How many of you have ever known that that happens, that people in church lie about leaders and pastors and give their pastors a hard time? It's very interesting that that happens. Now, I've got to tell you, you guys treat us great. You know, have people said bad things about me over the years? Well, sure. Have people lied about me over the years? Well, sure. Have people ever said bad things about you and lied about you? It's human nature. It's what people do. But generally speaking, you guys treat us great. So I'm not going to stand up here and whine and say, you don't know how hard I have it. I want you guys to have my life. If God calls you to be a pastor, I'm just telling you, it's a tremendous life. And then serving God, of course, regardless of whether you're a pastor or not, is a great life. So these were his reasons. This massive, this is back to his quote, this massive cognitive dissonance, my beliefs not matching with reality, created a separation between my head and my heart. I was gaslighting myself to stay in the faith. Gaslighting, just lying, just telling himself that these things were true when he didn't believe them. Eventually, I could not maintain the facade anymore. I started to have mental and emotional breaks. My internal stress started to show in physical symptoms. Being a pastor, a professional Christian, was killing me. So what did he do? Eventually, I pulled the lever and dropped the bomb. Career, marriage, family, social standing, network, reputation, all gone in an instant. And honestly, I didn't intend to fully walk away, but the way the church turned on me forced me to leave permanently. Very interesting. So he gives these six reasons why he left the faith. 
And this last one was the way that Christians treated him when he started expressing these problems and began walking away. So what was he missing? Now, how many of you have heard some of these same reasons from others that walk away from the Lord? You ever heard some of these same reasons? I have as well. So for you young people, you graduates, how are, how are you going to... Have you young people look up here at me. How are you going to keep from walking away from the Lord when these kinds of questions start to come in your mind? What was he missing? And I'm going to go through each of his reasons and compare them with Scripture and see what he was missing. But primarily what he was missing was an eternal view of God. Doesn't it look like he was looking at everything except God? It's so interesting. Every, none of the examples that he gave had anything to do with God. Look at Isaiah 57 and verse 15. I have it on the screen, but look at your Bibles if you would. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit to receive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. How many of you can see that that's the only verse he needed? You see, when he started to go through hard times, and let me just tell you something. I'm sure they were hard times. I'm sure they were genuine doubts. They were genuine struggles. I don't doubt what he says in any of this. And yet his problem is he took his eyes off of the eternal one. And then that humility of spirit that it takes to believe what God has said, he lost it. He lost it. He needed an eternal view of God. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. You know what? God can still revive his heart. Isn't that the blessing? He can. An eternal view of God is necessary because he is eternal. If you're going to know the one true God, he is an eternal God. And so if you're going to have a view of him, it must be a view of the eternal God. God is not bound by time like we are. He's not in a hurry. You know, we, we can run out of time. As a pastor, often the, the clock, as I'm trying to, trying to teach and preach, is the enemy. God doesn't have that concern. And sometimes he takes an entire lifetime to teach us one lesson. It's very interesting, that eternal view of God. An eternal view of God is necessary because he is eternal. So are this David Gass, are his reasons valid? So let's, young people, I want to go through these reasons because these are some things that you will deal with. Let's look at them. The first reason was Greek mythology. Greek mythology. Now, honestly, how many of you thought this one was kind of silly when you heard it, especially from a full-grown man? And this is the first thing that I said here. This reveals a very immature understanding of Scripture and the supernatural. I'm just telling you, the uh, Xena warrior princess, was that her name? Does not affect my understanding of Scripture. Hercules does not affect my understanding of Scripture. It's so interesting. It's a, it's a very immature view of Scripture and of the supernatural. And you're, I think some of you might find some of this really interesting. So look at Ephesians 6. So remember, his reading in eighth grade, his reading of Greek mythology started to affect his understanding of the supernatural because those stories sounded like the, 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 what the Bible says. All right, so look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So the Apostle Paul, as the Holy Spirit had him write, is warning us that there is a spiritual battle. There are other powerful forces in this world that are not like us. Is that what the Bible is saying? So we're supposed to put on the armor of God so that we can withstand that. 
So now how many of you, this is, this is going to be shocking, and I want you to raise your hands, and everybody, I want you to, how many of you have heard those verses before? Would you raise your hands? So why in the world would you not expect that there are other spiritual realities that have been demonstrated in other forms of literature? Why should that shake your faith at all? And I'll tell you, one of the problems that he has and he demonstrates by this Greek mythology problem is because of his training, he never actually believed the words of his Bible. So I want you to look at a couple of things. It'll be kind of fun. He was warned. He was warned and this Greek mythology was explained. Look at Genesis chapter 6. Okay, put your seatbelts on if you've never heard this before. You're about to hear some really weird stuff from the Bible. Okay, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1. And it came to pass, everybody have their Bibles? Really important that you see this. And it came to pass, and if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the, just look under the chair in front of you, there's a Bible. You're, you're going to have a hard time this morning if you don't have a Bible in front of you. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them. Now, how many of you have a hard time understanding that so far? Okay, people are multiplying, and these guys have daughters. Are you all with me on this? Okay. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men. Sons of God and daughters of men. Now, how many of you can see that that's identifying two different groups of people? Sons of God and daughters of men. A son of God, according to the word of God, is a direct creation of God. Let me explain that to you. Keep your place here in Genesis 6. Go to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, look at verse 38. What are we, we're, we're talking about Greek mythology right now. Okay? The Bible deals with this. So what is a son of God? Look at Luke chapter 3 and verse 38. Which was the son of Enos. Okay, so this is the lineage of Jesus. Which was the son of Enos. Which was the son of Seth. Which was the son of Adam. Which was the son of God. Now, answer this question out loud, okay? You, and you, I don't think you can fail it. Was Adam born? He was created. So a son of God is a direct creation of God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The Bible says in John chapter 1, he came unto his own and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them gave he power to be called the sons of God. They are a new creature, a new creature, a new creation. All right, so a son of God is a direct creation of God. And that's the way that phrase is used all through the Bible, except for Jesus, who's the only begotten son of God. The only one born of the seed of God is Jesus Christ. And then we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So Jesus Christ is the only begotten son of God. So now if you have a Bible that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, rather than saying that he gave his only begotten son, they have removed something very important from your Bible because all of us are sons of God if we're born again. So angels are sons of God because they are direct creations of God. Adam was a son of God because he was the direct creation of God. And we who are saved, born again, those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Christ alone, we are sons of God because he has made us a new creature in him. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. Now, notice, all I'm doing is telling you what the Bible says. We're not making anything up. We're just saying what the Bible says. Go back to Genesis 6. All right, verse 1 again. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he also is flesh. Okay, so man is flesh. The sons of God were able to appear as men. 
You say, well, that sounds weird. How do angels appear as men? Every time you see an angel in the Bible, he looks like a man. Every time. If you look at the the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, those angels that came to see Abraham and to announce what was going to happen, the men of Sodom wanted to have relations with those men because they were beautiful men. Okay? So this happens. Then look at what it says, verse 4. There were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. When after that were there giants? Remember the Hebrew children wanted to go into the promised land. And the Bible said, well, so you have the 12 uh, spies that go into the land. Caleb and Joshua say, we can do it. And the rest of them said, no, why? Because there are giants in the land and we're as grasshoppers in their sight. Then Goliath and his sons. And you see it all through the scriptures that there were these giants in those days. And there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. Look at this. When the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bear children to them. Now, everybody look up here at a, for me. At me for a second. Um, so I was in Cleveland at a big pastor's meeting, hundreds and hundreds of pastors. Went out to eat with some pastors and we were discussing this text. And the way that a lot of people are taught is that Genesis 6, you have the godly line of Seth, godly people who start intermarrying with the ungodly line of Cain. And that's what's happening in this text. Has anyone here ever been taught that, that that's the way that that is taught? That's that's the way some people teach that. The only problem is nowhere in the Bible does it talk about the godly line of Seth or the ungodly line of Cain. It's complete fabrication. What you have in the text are the sons of God enter into the daughters of men. And so what I, and they marry them. And so what I, I said was this. I asked this preacher, I said, have you ever had a saved person from your church marry an unsaved person? And he said, well, yeah. I said, and their children were di- giants and God destroyed the world because of it, right? Well, no. Well, then that's not what's happening in this text. Because let's just read the text and look at what happens. So verse 4, there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. When the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, which became mighty men, which were of old, then look at these next three words. Read them out loud with me. Men of renown. You wonder where the legends of Hercules and all of these demigods come from? It's where you have gods marrying with men, and they produce children that have supernatural abilities. Is that Greek mythology? Am I making it up or is that Greek mythology? The Bible tells us that's exactly what happened. It's so interesting. So then look at what happens in verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what does God do? He separates Noah and his sons, their wives, and destroys the rest of the world because of that sin. So now you're saying, well, wait a minute. You just said gods. Here it says sons of gods. I want you to see something else. It's pretty interesting. Look at Psalm 82. Psalm 82. See, he had a very immature understanding of the scriptures and of Greek mythology. Psalm 82. Now, is the book of Psalms an unusual book of the Bible to read? Is the book of Genesis an unusual book of the Bible to read? None of these things are hidden. I mean, most people make it to about Genesis 6 in January before they stop their one-year Bible reading. Look at the book of Psalms, Psalm 82. God standeth in the congregation of the who? Genesis 6, what did it say that these men became? Mighty men, men of renown. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the who? How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Remember the wicked, that's Satan. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. You know that's what happened in the flood, right? I have said, ye are gods, 
And all of you are children of the Most High, sons of God. But ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. God told us that this is what was going to happen in the world. God has told these creatures, these sons of God, what will happen to them. And so what happened in the flood? All the foundations of the earth were destroyed, and they died like men. Why should any of this concern us? Here's an interesting thing. I think this is pretty fascinating. How does what I just said fit with history? Well, Noah was born around 3000 B.C. So this was the condition of the world when Noah was born, right? Noah had to be there in order for God to use Noah to deliver the earth from these mighty men, these giants, this corruption of the world, the imaginations. God used Noah. How many of you know that God used Noah in that, right? 3000 B.C. When did Greek mythology start? This is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. It is likely that Greek myths evolved from stories told in the Minoan civilization of Crete, which flourished from about 3000 to 1100 BC. So it's interesting that the Bible describes the condition in 3000 BC. And when do these stories begin to be told? In 3000 BC. Shazam! (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. So his problem is he has an immature view of Greek mythology. He has an immature view of the word of God and possibly complete ignorance about what the Bible says about these things. And then he has an immature view of history of when things happened. So again, this kind of thinking from a pastor, it causes all kinds of problems. So for you young people, understand we have answers for all of this stuff. Not me, not Jim Alter. God has provided the answers for all of these things. All right, I got to go a little faster. All right, so what's the answer? Believe the words of the Bible. Believe the It's almost time to be done, and I'm through one. I'll go a little faster. I told you, you need an eternal view of this service. It might go on for a long time. So believe the words of the Bible and have an eternal view of God. That's what he needed. Deuteronomy 10, 17. This is so cool. For the Lord, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. There is not an individual that he looks at and says, oh, you're better than somebody else. And there's nothing you can give him to bribe him. And yes, there are other gods in the world, but they're small g gods. There's only one true God. Uh, It was Martin Luther that said, yes, there's a devil, but he's God's devil. We're not dualists. Then reason two, hyper-fundamentalism where Christianity didn't work and the answers were lies. What's the answer? Have an eternal view of God. This is such an interesting thing. So Deuteronomy 32.4, did I put it in there? No, I didn't. So look at Deuteronomy 32.4 and listen real fast because I got to go quickly. Deuteronomy 32 and look at verse 4. Who is our God? He is the rock. His work is, what's that next word? Perfect. Now, oh, wait, some folks are still turning. I love that sound, but you got to see this. Deuteronomy 32, 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. So regardless of what fundamentalists or hyper-fundamentalists were doing, if he had an eternal view of God, everything God does is right. Look at Romans chapter 4. This is so important. He grew up in this hyper-fundamentalist faith or home where there were lies, he said. Well, that hyper-fundamentalism is all about a works faith. That's what he's talking about in behavior. But look at what the Bible says, Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. So what that's saying is God declares sinners to be righteous based on the blood of Jesus. That's what it means to be justified. Why? Because we don't have any righteousness of our own. So when Jesus' blood washes us, when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. 
right? So how does that happen? Verse 5 again. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. You can't work to have a relationship with God. That only happens by faith, by believing who he is, having an eternal view of God and his grace and his mercy. Look at Romans chapter 11 and verse 6. You need a proper view of God's grace. Look at verse 6. And if by grace, then is it no more of works? Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. How many of you ever heard that salvation is grace and works? There are entire religions that are based on that, grace and works, which completely contradicts the Bible. If it's grace and works, then it's not grace. If it's grace and works, then it's not works. It's neither one. It's either works or it's grace, and the Bible says it's not works. It's grace. So what did he misunderstand from the Scripture? Everything. It doesn't matter what someone tells you to do. Salvation is only by grace. That's the God that we worship, not the teachers that teach wrongly. And so his problem is he needed an eternal view of God and the Bible. The answers were lies. What answers? Did the answers come from the Bible? If they didn't come from the Bible, then they're not true. And then what was he expecting and why? Do you know how many people get discouraged because some preachers promised them something that God never promised them? There's a great gospel hymn. I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden. And one of the great gospel hymns of the past. Then reason three, a bad marriage. Now, I got to tell you, man, if you're in a bad marriage, there is hurt that comes from that that is unlike almost anything else. Maybe the loss of a child or betrayal that, uh, of some kind of betrayal. The, the marriage problems can be the deepest felt problems. And that was one of his reasons. He was relying on marriage seminars and marriage books. What are the happy marriage requirements in the scriptures? Let's look at it. Two believers dying to self. That's what it takes to have a happy marriage. We showed that video of that Christian comedian. He said on the day of his marriage, his dad came to him and said, Son, I've got two questions. Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? And then he broke down and cried. <laughs> he said, I haven't been right in 14 years, but man, am I happy. <laughs> That's what he said. It's so interesting. Listen to what the Bible says. Happy marriage requirements, two believers dying to self. Proverbs 13.10, only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. If you're so proud that you can't die to self, you'll never have a happy marriage. This is the requirement for a happy marriage. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter seven, look at verse three. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. So here are the requirements for a happy marriage, you die to self and realize that your desires are no longer your desires. For the husband, her desires are my desires. For the wife, my desires are her desires. Those are the qualifications for a happy marriage. Now, how many of you can already see why someone would not have a happy marriage? It's so interesting. Now, we can do seminars on marriage we can spend a whole bunch of time and bring in a bunch of books on marriage. But if you don't start with this foundation, you will never have a good marriage. That's what it takes. And here's the problem. You can't make someone else behave in a Christ-like manner. So if you're married to someone that refuses to behave like a Christian, there's nothing you can do about that except give it to the Lord. And he never promised you to change that person. God never promised that he would change your spouse. 
Why was he believing that God would change his spouse? It's possible that he was the one that needed to change. I don't know. I have no idea what was going on in their marriage. The answer, believe what God said about you. Believe what God said about you. Reason four, failing to see and experience the supernatural. Well, whose mail was he reading? What, what promises from the Bible was he claiming that God hasn't given him? Where does God promise us the power to do miracles? There's sickness right now. People that are struggling with sickness. I can't heal you. Where did God ever promise you that your pastor could heal you? Where does the Bible ever promise that? It doesn't. Whose mail was he reading? God never promised us that. So what's the answer? 2 Timothy 2.15. All the kids in our church know this. Study to show thyself... Let's have everybody. You ready? Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Apparently, he was wrongly dividing the word of truth. The great way to be frustrated in Christianity is to expect God something, God to do something for you that he never told you he would. God never promised us that we would be able to do miracles. The answer is context. All right, let's go on. Reason five. Devout, devout people were the most miserable but kept trying harder. Well, the answer, 2 Corinthians, look on the screen, 2 Corinthians 10 to 12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. So, man, if I based my Christianity on some of you, I'd walk away from the faith too. If you based your Christianity on me, all of y'all would walk away from the faith. That's why Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. So now I will say this, his statement about devout people being miserable and they just kept trying harder and were miserable. I just don't think that's a true statement. Because that, how many of you would agree that, that those are not the devout people that you know? Would you raise your hand? You, seriously, it, it doesn't make any sense at all. All right, so let's go on. So what, what is he supposed to do? His answer, look to the eternal God. He was looking at people, and what he needed to do was looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, how many of you are thankful that Jesus, okay, so Jesus, if he looked at his disciples and their reaction to his suffering, aren't you glad he didn't base what he did next on that? Because they all left him. Peter denied him. They didn't believe in his resurrection. They didn't believe at all until he rose from the dead and appeared in front of him. In front of them. We look to Jesus. We don't look to the people around us. It's so important. Let's go on. Developing an eternal view of God. Then the reason six, abuse of Christians. Look at Galatians chapter five. Are y'all doing okay? We're going to finish this. We'll get through the eternal message. Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 13. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, y'all know that, right? Look at the next verse. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. So here's Paul writing to the church at Galatia and telling these believers, don't bite and devour each other. And then he says this, this I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the spirit, ye are not under the law. Look at this. What's the first word of verse 19? Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, Strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and in case he had forgotten anything, and such like. 
of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in past time, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. What did this pastor not understand? The apostle Paul had just described to him what it's like in a local church. What you have is some people are walking in the spirit and they're full of joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, and there are others that are walking in the flesh and they're full of seditions and anger and backbiting and lasciviousness. And What in the world was he surprised about? See, young people, one of the reasons I believe that... Look up here, young people. One of the reasons that I believe that the Bible is true is because of the way it describes us. It describes us perfectly. If a man says he has no sin, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. There's none that doeth good. There's none that seeketh after God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the description of us. And so the Bible makes it very clear who we are. So abuse of Christians, the answer, believe what God said about church people. And he didn't. He didn't. So what is an eternal view of God? It's a biblical view of God. <coughs> Sorry. What is that? He is perfect. I've just got three things here with some verses, and we'll be done. God is perfect, and everything he does is right. We read this verse already. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. And then God is holy. Psalm 99.9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill. For the Lord our God is holy. Never make God a condoner of your sin. God is holy. Because I struggle with sin, that is no reason for me to make God a sinner like me. Of course, I could never do that. But in my understanding of him or in my explanation of him to try and make it somehow that God loves sin. That's not the God of the Bible. He is holy. But number three, this holy God loves you. That's an amazing thought. The fact that God is completely sinless and completely righteous and hates sin, the fact that he loves us, that's how we understand what grace and mercy really are. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That everlasting life is only true if we have an eternal view of God. If God is eternal, then our life becomes eternal. Praise God for him. It's an interesting thing. Young people, let me tell you something. <clears throat> so this pastor, David Gass, his church responded some of the deacons from his church responded. And what they said was, what he didn't tell you in these texts was he had a one-year ongoing sexual relationship with a woman in the church and that he's left his wife and is now living with this woman. So let me tell you something, young people. The reason that people give you for leaving Christ, for leaving the faith, is almost never the reason. The reason that people, that Christians, that young people who have been raised in the faith, that genuinely know the truth of the word of God, and they have parents that love the Lord, that are not perfect, but they know that their parents love the Lord. The reason that young people leave the faith, usually for two reasons. They never believed it in the first place, number one. Number two, they want to live a lifestyle that violates what the Bible tells them they can and can't do. There is nothing more immature than when you're told you can't do something to say, well, then that's what I'm going to do. There's nothing more satanic than that. I love the young people that are tired of being told what to do, so they go and join the military. It's one of my favorite things. Okay, so young people, I want you to look around here. I'm going to... How many of you that are here have jobs? Would you raise your hands? How many of you have jobs? Okay, look, look around, young people. Look at these. How many of you, adults, at your job, someone tells you what you can and can't do? Would you raise your hands? 
And you've got two choices. Do what they say, don't do what they say not to do, or don't work there. Go and live in a van down by the river. That's what it comes down to. Sometimes people say, well, I want to have faith, but I don't like the faith that's taught at Grace Baptist Church. Well, what you're saying then is you don't like the Bible. Because what have we done today? Verse after verse after verse after verse after verse. Now, if you walk away from the faith because of my behavior, shame on me. The Bible says you say you believe in him, then walk even as he walked. That's what the Bible says. I think it was Bob Jones Sr. that said your walk talks... I'm sorry, your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. That's why it's so important that we live as believers. Church members, imagine if you were the reason that somebody walked away from the faith because you appeared miserable, like your face is when I began preaching today. It's interesting. Imagine if somebody walked away from the faith because of your miserable spirit. That's convicting to me. Because I can have a pretty miserable spirit sometimes. What if somebody walked away from the Lord because of your anger, because of your bitterness? What if someone walked away from the Lord because of the way you treat your pastor or the way your pastor treats other people? That is a horrible thing. That being said, it's no excuse. Because God told you people would stink. Why should you be surprised when you find out that a person is a sinner? Why should that shock you? And then you young people that are getting ready to get married, where's Josh and Kenzie? All the way, see, they're already moving to the back row. Do you see this? Don't be surprised, Josh, when you find out she's a sinner. And we'll stop right there. No, don't be... Don't be surprised, Mackenzie, when you find out Josh is a sinner. Don't be surprised by that. And so part of our pre-marriage counseling is die to self. Learn to die to self. What is the answer to all of this? Have an eternal view of God and believe his word. Have an eternal view of God and have an eternal view of his word. That's the answer. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. That's why we need to learn his ways. That's why we need to have his thoughts so that we can become an example to those around us of love, joy, peace, gentleness, temperance, all of those things that the Bible promises us. Amen? That's who we're supposed to be. Have an eternal view of God. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for these young people. Lord, Caitlin and Aiden and Hannah and Isaiah.